Welcome to Always Searching, the podcast challenging conventional wisdom about health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. I'm delighted that you're here. Our guest is a space scientist, a mental health champion who utilizes artificial intelligence and digital treatments and therapies. She's an entrepreneur who's even developed snowboards for women. She's a Jedi leader, and that sort of fits when you consider that she's a Star Wars enthusiast. She's also served on many boards, including being the chair for three terms for the Colorado Space Business Roundtable, as well as for my nonprofit, iGiant, which is the impact of gender and sex on innovation and novel technologies. She's a true Renaissance woman. It's Alaris Allman. And I am so delighted that she's joining us on Always Searching. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Welcome, Alaris. Thank you, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's such a joy to finally have some time to talk to you because you are doing so many different things. And one of the things that I realized is I know you're a fellow Westerner. I'm from Colorado, and I think you're from New Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit about your life growing up and and what made you want to do what you're doing and who are some of your role models? Sure. You know, I grew up in Las Cruces, New Mexico, born and raised. And to answer, you know, the question that many of your listeners may have is, yes, there are Black people in <laughs> Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I think you uh, you hit it on the head here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I... I grew up just being curious and reading a lot and hoping that what I read in my science fiction books would one day become true. Um, My big inspiration of going into psychology was reading Isaac Asimov's The Foundation. I wanted to find a mathematical model for human behavior so people could make the right decisions. You know, that's the the Mm -hmm. fallacy of youth and thinking you know that there's a right answer. There's not. Um, And my grandfather, I was raised by my grandparents, and my grandfather worked at NASA. He worked on the Apollo missions, on the Saturn missions and things like that. I still have some of the coins that they gave as medallions for each of the Apollo missions. I think I have 12, 14, uh, 11, of course, things like that. So it was always in the family I didn't realize it until I left. I went to undergrad at University of Georgia and I thought, oh, I can't be an astronaut because I'm into psychology. I'm not in the military. I'm not Mm -hmm. in the medical field. So I just kind of put it to the side. And when I went to my first job, I worked for the Bureau of Reclamation. One of the directors used to work for NASA and he's like, well, you don't have to be in the military to be an astronaut. I was like, what? (laughs) It's shocking. Yeah, I was so excited. So I um, that just put me back on the path Mm -hmm. of wanting to be part of the space industry. And, you know, fast forward a few years and I met Dr. Mae Jemison and she and I clicked because we were talking about Star Trek for like an hour. And I was um, hosting her for a day. She was doing a speech here and I moved to Denver by this time. And she was host. She was going to speak for um, a women's leadership group, and I had the fortune of uh, hosting for the day. And we just clicked, and from there, 
just got to do different projects with her. And the big bang of my space career was working with her on the 100-year Starship project, which was seed funded by DARPA and NASA. And it's looking at doing a 100-year feasibility study for interstellar human spaceflight. And my my contribution to that were the social sciences and psychology is like, well, here we are. I can, so you know, brought full circle. You're bringing in a lot of good stuff here. So you're talking about DARPA. Can you explain to our listeners, our team of explorers, what DARPA is? And then this whole thing about interstellar, I don't think people quite understand what that means. Sure. So DARPA is Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. It's an agency that's part of the Department of Defense whose sole purpose is to look toward the future and try the audacious things. It's like, what do we need to do to move the needle beyond where we can see? And interstellar human spaceflight is huge. We talk about human exploration. The furthest humans have ever gone is the moon. And the moon, you can see it every day. It's right there. While you can see our other stars as well, when you look at our solar system, our solar system is anchored by one star. And there's planets that are orbiting in its gravitational pull. When you look at another star system that may have another star like our sun and other planets, that is considered another star system. So when we get out a gravitational pull of the sun, what we would call the edge of our solar system, then we're out into interstellar space. It's between different star systems. And the nearest one to us is Alpha Centauri, which is only in the grand scheme of things, (laughs) 4.2 light years away. Doesn't sound much, but when you actually take it out there, it's uh, it's beyond our life spectrum, isn't it? Absolutely. It's in our human terms and our capabilities, it's 70,000 years away. So how do you help humans survive for that long when we've only been sentient as human beings, as a human species, for barely over 35,000 years. So how did you and May choose 100 years? So if you think about, you know, you're talking here 70,000 years, 3,500 years. How did you choose 100 years? What was so special about that? We didn't choose it. It was part of the DARPA uh, request for proposal, the Mm -hmm. RFP. They chose 100 years. And I think the reason that they chose that is like, What do you need to do to prepare to go? So it's not even can we go in 100 years? It's more of this is it takes us 100 years to prepare to create the capabilities to mount a mission. So in year 100 from the start of this mission or review, I think of I think of it as a 100 year feasibility study. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that 100 years, you can mount a mission to go. And by then, within that 100 years, we don't know what capabilities may arise, what technological advances may appear, which Mm -hmm. may push us right now, this day, it'll take 70,000 years. In 50 years, new technology may emerge that may only, you know, be one-tenth the speed of light. We can get there in 70 years. We don't know. But we do know that we need to understand what is necessary to mount a mission. I mean, that was always so fascinating for me. I worked at NASA for 18 years, and and we're always doing, you know, long-range planning. So you were looking at 10, 20, 30 years, but we were focused on the technologies that we had at hand. And it just seemed a little archaic because, as you mentioned, things are going to be different. I mean, look back at 1920. Where were we in 1920? Could you imagine planning where we were in 1920 for what we're doing right now? Exactly. 
it would be, you know, the stuff of fantasy and nobody would believe. Yeah. <laughs> nobody would. I mean, especially, you know, for Star I mean, Star Wars really influenced all of us in Star Trek. And some of that technology is sort of at our fingertips. You know what I've always found fascinating talking to you? You have such a heavy entrepreneurial business background. You're into digital technology, but yet there's still that psychology, that that psychological aspect of human behavior that really overrides so much. How did you get connected to that? And 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 I know it's like your big love with the work that you're doing right now. So how do you combine all of that? You know, I made a conscious decision that anything that I touched had to incorporate behavioral health, psychology, technology, and aerospace exploration. You don't find that combination often. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) For opportunities to bring them together. My current um, position that I have, I work for a company called WellPower. It used Mm -hmm. to be Mental Health Center of Denver. We just rebranded. But I run the Innovation Technology Lab, and my my charge in running the Innovation Technology Lab is to use technology to be able to be a force multiplier to reach more people with the services that we have. So now you have to figure out how do you digitize behavioral health services? And it's very different than primary care health, which is more, you know, unless you have a chronic disease of long-term type engagement, it's it looks very different than behavioral health, which is a state of being that some people may have. And a lot of people don't think about their mental health. They think about mental illness, but right. not mental health. And so how do we help people understand that mental health is something you take care of just like your regular health? And given today's technology, there are so many different ways to do that. I think I am completely wired up. I have my Apple watch, I have my aura (laughs) ring, and Mm. they tell me what's going on with my body at all times. The aura ring gives me like a readiness score for the day. Mm -hmm. And behavioral health can, we're figuring out ways to look at, use artificial intelligence and machine learning to, you know, embrace those capabilities to give us new insights into human behavior and how people act and how we can help people when they do have a crisis moment and they need help. How do you predict that? How do you find and help them manage that on their own as well? So when you talk about your aura ring, I'm thinking about those old, you know, in the 1970s, the mood rings that change colors, depending on if you were happy or sad. I guess it was monitoring your body temperature. So it's, it's interesting to see things, you know, advance forward. You know, it's, we're living in such a complex time. And, you know, as you were talking about your 100 years project, that's certainly a complex situation. But I think the world we're in right now is truly challenging for so many people. How does technology help them? And can it also hurt them? I mean, everybody's wired. We're on 24-7. We're connected to social media. So how do you get the benefit of the technology and minimize some of the downside? You know, that's a great question because everything has, you know, it's a two-sided coin for everything that we produce. That was one of the questions we had. If you have something that monitors you, is that reinforcing your negative impulses because it's telling you you're depressed already? Well, right. I knew that. And now I have exactly. validation. Yeah. Th- thanks for letting me know. <laughs> exactly. Or does it motivate <laughs> you. you 
to do something different and use the tools that your therapist may have given you. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I'm feeling depressed today. My therapist said, when I feel like this, I should go take a walk or I should step away from behaviors that are risky behaviors. Mm-hmm. It could be a reminder. So you have to go for the positive side of what things are going to do instead of you don't discount. You definitely don't discount the um, the negative side, but you try and think about what is it that we can benefit from or how do we help a person benefit from this information? Because they're getting something that they may not have had before, another another level of awareness they that they didn't know, like when, you know, they may not have known about their sleep patterns and how mm-hmm. sleep can enhance your overall well-being. Sure. And that's what we're trying to do is give them tools to help their overall well-being. Like someone can over-exercise, but if you do exercise to a point where it enhances your well-being, then that's positive. So you're kind of moving people towards that precision innovation space where it's geared toward what an individual needs. But one of my concerns is, you know, we've talked a lot about the inequities in the health system. Yes. Is this for rich people? How, how do you democratize? You know, we always talk about democratizing space so everyone can go up and that will be incredible. But how do you democratize health and technology right here on this planet? You know, that's a great question. And that's part of the drivers for the innovation lab that I have in the Mm -hmm. sense that we have four drivers for the innovation lab. Whenever a new solution comes across our, you know, on our radar, it has to increase access to care, increase efficacy of care, increase engagement in care and reduce health inequities. And when we talk about technology, we have to make that technology available on as many platforms as possible. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the aura ring, you need a smartphone. But when we're looking at community mental health, and I work, the innovation lab that I work in is mm-hmm. in a community mental health center, which means that we're funded by the state. It's mm-hmm. Medicaid, it's Medicare. So these are not rich people, but we are really driving the point that just because you're rich doesn't mean you're not rich doesn't mean that you shouldn't have top of the line health care. Right. So we created one of the tools that we created is called you at your mm-hmm. And when we created it, it's an online platform for you to be curious. If you're curious about your mental health, um, you want to enhance your well-being. This is this is a tool that you can do. You can, you know, take these assessments and set goals for yourself. It's very light. It's not meant to be a therapeutic treatment, but it is a way to open the door to your mental health. Well, we didn't create it as an app. An app, you need a smartphone. We Mm -hmm. created it to be on a platform that you can access by just your computer. Mm -hmm. And all the functionality is on a website. So it's a web-based platform. And that is our whole idea. It's like, you don't need to have a smartphone to access your well-being. You can do it on a computer. You can go into the library and access it. That's really such a good point because I also see that generational divide. Yes. So <laughs> many people are comfortable and familiar with their apps, but if you talk to a certain generation, they don't know what you're talking about. So I think from what I'm gathering, you're trying to make it so anyone can use it. Right. And then what if you're experiencing homelessness? Um, right. Exactly. You want to connect with the therapist. We try to make everything on a platform that's technology agnostic. Is that a word? I don't know if that's it, a word. Yeah, it is. I hear it so, a lot. Yep. 
<laughs> yep. Yep. It's, a good, it's a good word. I like it. Yeah, because we want everyone to be able to access it and, you know, get the benefits of the technology. Now you have at your fingertips any, you know, any kind of resource and we can tell you where that resource is from this platform. So you can just go into a library, like you said, and you have access, even if you're quote unquote homeless, you still have a place to go. Is that right? Absolutely. And you can have Mm -hmm. a therapy appointment there as well. You know, when we start to open up again, because we are starting to developing this right before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So um, now, and it's also accessible by, you know, telehealth is through a phone that, you know, you can just call Mm -hmm. on a flip phone. Mm -hmm. So we provided that technology to people who are experiencing homeless or, you know, the other part of this technology and digital divide is access to good internet service. You can have a $12 million house, but if it's in the rural area where there's no internet access, it doesn't matter. Right. You're in the, you're in a zone that's, you know, right. Your wealth does not give you that access. So, you know, taking it from what you're doing here and then looking at space exploration, how do you think digital technology will improve mental health for SpaceX or for being in a, you know, like you said, remote area, isolated area, microgravity in space? How effective do you think it will be? And do we need to like develop like holograms, make it more visual? Do we need to have, there's something I believe called haptic technology where you can actually touch. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that all relate? You know, that's an interesting question because, you know, when I look at how we're using space exploration Mm -hmm. as a mechanism for innovation, the problem that you're trying to solve, which is a great, the way you framed it is like someone's in isolation. How do they make, how do they connect Mm -hmm. in, um, in space and things like that? If we can solve that problem for space, that that solution yeah. now is ready for Earth. Sure. So everything is a terrestrial and a and a space solution. Um, and when you look at healthcare or just behavioral health support for people who are um, going on these long term missions, these deep space missions, mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot of training of the individual to train who they are and to be attuned to their body and mm. be attuned to the people that they're in contact with. But we also really have to good. give them tools to be able to reach back to their loved ones. I have a, a friend who's trying to develop a way f- to reduce that time delay in communication mm-hmm. back to earth. And so that is a way to lo- to address that issue. And what I love about his solution it was all inspired by his work. He's a therapist mm-hmm. and he used to work in rural communities and understanding what people need to feel connected, to feel a part of their community and not only of their community, but to another human being. And how do you replicate that in space? So the earth is, you know, our earthbound problems are helping, are motivating us to solve that problem for space, but it's also, you know, back on earth, how do we use that same tool to help people connect in different ways? So it's that translational element, you know, that we always call it the tech transfer components. So that, that has significant impact. And, you know, just think about, think about our lives right now. We're in this pandemic. 
And some people are out in the world pretending it's not a pandemic and others are still isolating and doing what they need to do to protect their health. And they feel very disconnected. How can your technology help that population? And what did you also learn during the pandemic? Because I mean, talk about it being this incredible, I call it the human challenge study. And it's global. And every human factor that you could imagine, age, race, sex, gender, socioeconomic, all come into play. So what were some of the things you learned? One of the things we learned is not everybody was upset by being isolated. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, you know, we have a lot a very yeah. large introverted population mm-hmm. of people who uh, are introverts, and that was like, okay, yeah, this is my heaven. But <laughs> at some point, though, they also needed human connection. It's a very mm-hmm. measured human connection. Um, I, I think one thing we learned is that you can make connection through technology. The the prevailing philosophy of like therapy is it had to be face to face in person for it to be effective for you to get that human connection. And what we found is the technology and the telehealth can be just as effective. You don't have to be there in person to have the communic that full, you know, 360 experience, that 180 and that that um, mm-hmm. telehealth piece could be just as effective as face-to-face. So it gave people hope that you can still connect even though it's through a screen. It's not the best, you know, fidelity from a fidelity perspective, mm-hmm. but it is effective and it doesn't leave you 100% empty. Do you find there was any age or gender differences with this? I think there was more adjustment in the in the um, older generations, because mm-hmm. this is a, a technology that just wasn't what they did. Um, I think one thing we made the assumption is that younger people, this is how they connected. They were fine with the new technology, but what we find is they still need that other half of that connection as well. That it wasn't just, you know, you if you have teenagers, they're fine texting each other, being in the same room with each other. Right. Texting. Uh-huh. It's, it's but, our upstairs, downstairs. Yeah. Don't, exactly. Don't go see them or make a call. Yeah. But the point is that they're still in the same room doing it. They're still connected, mm-hmm. kind of like physically. And you still need that to some degree. And it's not the technology solves it all. It gives us a darn good Band-Aid. So speaking of technology, I don't know if you had seen the um, Jubilee for the Queen and they showcased her golden carriage. And what was a little weird, a little strange is they had a hologram of her waving, you know, from the time when she was in her 20s and was just, corn, you know, had her coronation. And I, part of me thought, well, that's kind of clever. It probably made some people feel comfortable. But the question is, could we use that technology to simulate that someone actually is in the room with you? If there was like a hologram for long duration missions or isolation, what are your thoughts about that? You know, I think it could work if you had the the time delay to have the real conversation. Mm-hmm. Like going to Mars. Right. Well, that's what virtual reality is, right? Yeah. Is that you're both in the same place at the same time, even though you're not physically, you mm-hmm. know, you're on the East Coast, I'm over here in the Rocky Mountains. And if we were in virtual reality, we're still there together at the same time and can make a conversation. If that hologram still had that time delay, 
it wouldn't be effective. Okay. So because we're not able to have that conversation. So this is reminding me, I remember having a conversation with you with some folks who were in the gaming industry. Um, are you still, are you, you're into gaming, right? You know, I, in my mind, I am in practice. A gamer would say no, but if you play <laughs> games, you're a gamer. <laughs> and therefore I am. You are a gamer. So tell me, I mean, cause there are, there's good and bad with it. You know, we're saying, Hey, the bad is that kids are living in these, you know, virtual worlds and they're hearing and experiencing more violence. And then the other is like what we just talked about where you can share that space. How did you get into it? And and what have, what have your experiences been, especially as a woman doing it? Because it seems more geared towards, you know, that traditional cisgender, you know, male pattern. You know, I've had, an interesting engagement with with gaming. My my entree was the game Civilization. That's where I fell in deep. What um, is that? Civilization is a game where you take. It starts four thousand BC, and you mm-hmm. take a, a village. You know, some mm-hmm. villagers, and you right. take that village from four thousand BC all the way to the space age, and you are the. Um, architect of your civilization. You don't know what you don't know. You have to discover, like, if you build your, if you um, settle your settlers on the edge of um, an island and you see that there's water, we know in our world that you would build a boat. But in the gaming world, you have to discover every piece of technology to build that boat. And they had this wonderful tech tree and I really think that their tech tree, they, they made several iterations. I think they're on Civ 6. And they did a starship, a, a starship game, Civilization Starship. And they had this tech tree of the technology you had to develop in order to get artificial gravity. You needed the technology to do oh. faster than light. And mm. I love their tech tree. And I still think it's, it's fabulous. I, I have the poster of it from Civ 2, 3, and 4. So that was strategy. They call that mm-hmm. strategy real-time game or turn-based playing. I got a console. I don't have any eye-hand coordination. <laughs> I love the game Mass Effect. That Mass was my Effect? Mass okay. Effect, M-A-S-S-E-F-F-E-C-T. Mm-hmm. That was good. I still haven't gotten through it, and I hope the person who I got that from does not hear that. Um, <laughs> but the one game that has really enthralled me yeah. Recently, there are two of them. It's Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. It's a mobile game that's on my phone. I played it every day for six years. And oh I gosh. got to know my players. I, I was there at the beginning. They introduced guilds. So now I joined mm-hmm. this guild called Serious Business. We became friends. I played wow. it every day. And then when I left, I didn't just leave the game. I had to tell my guild leader that I was leaving because we made a connection. We had an understanding of what everyone's role was. Like I wasn't the best player. So, um, you know, when we go on raids, we will only take our best players and I would stay behind, but you still, the whole guild benefited. You knew what your role was. And it was just really interesting to see the kind of camaraderie that we got in such a virtual world. I never met that person. I don't know if they're male or female. I know they're in Australia we had people in California. Our guild was just made up of all kinds of people. And it was just fascinating to see that community grow. 
And then the other game was Detroit Become Human, which is basically civil rights for Android. And what I loved about the game was it exposed the decision tree. So you would do a scene and you would make your decisions. And after you finish that scene, it would show you all the decisions that could have been made. You don't know what they are, but you see that the tree is dark or light versus the path that you took. And you can see what other people did. It was fascinating because I love game theory and decision theory. Mm-hmm. That's the basis of my research. So I yeah. love that game. And I made it all the way through. That's another that is one. incredible. I didn't know all this about, I didn't know that they had that possibility. So I'm seeing it, you know, we hear the military using gaming to help troops to you know, do what they need to do. But can you imagine how we could use this from a population basis to actually change psychosocial structures? You could because you do make your rules and people buy into them mm-hmm. and they could play them out to see what would happen. I definitely think it's a great way to, to it's a great lens to understand things. I think about civilization when I play that mm-hmm. um, uh, to help me understand geopolitics. It's like, what yeah. happens when all the yeah. land is taken? How do you win? Mm-hmm. What do you do as a civilization? And it, it's, it's just, it's a wonderful, well-researched game. Well, it's like two things. I'm thinking like zero sum, you know, what happens in that. And then in regard to what we're seeing right now with gun violence and, yeah. you know, especially male developing brains, you know, they're just so open to whatever input is put in, in your teenage years. How could we use this as a force for good? How could we incorporate it into good mental health and as a good diversion from what we're seeing right now? It depends on the format that you're using, because I had a teenager over to my house one day Mm -hmm. and to entertain them, I brought out my game console and there was a game that was built specifically for that. It's to teach kids different um, ways of handling situation. It was a game for good. And one thing she said just really, really stuck with me. She's like, yeah, it's, it's a game for good, but no one's going to play this. Well, it didn't enthrall them. You know what I'm huh. saying? It wasn't, so was it because it wasn't, you know, filled with violence and action or too cerebral? What was the thing with it? I think it, it definitely appealed to a certain demographic. She's like, mm-hmm. this is very much the game was built in Colorado. And she's mm-hmm. like, this looks like Colorado. Yeah, this Colorado. doesn't interest me. I can't relate to it. And it's like, it's cool, it's whatever, but it wasn't of interest enough to play it. Now, on the other hand, working at WellPower, we have a group of clinicians who are using Minecraft as a way to do group therapy for kids. So tell me what Minecraft is. So Minecraft is this multiplayer game it's open environment Mm -hmm. where you come together and you build things you can build it by yourself you can build it with the team your friends you can go out and do small raids and what we've learned and we we picked this up during the pandemic because they're like how do we get our kids who are in group therapy to play together what does the future play therapy look like Mm -hmm. and they um they really engage and they being the, the the kids really engaged in it. And one of the comments, and we're still doing some clinical research with it, 
but we had a hundred percent show rate. Nobody missed their, their, their group therapy. And one of the kids was like, well, if this is what therapy is, then I will do these other things that you've asked me to do. So it's using gaming as a gateway to therapy, not the therapy in and of itself. But they did do therapy. So we had two clinicians and the students or the kids who are in the group therapy class. And the therapists would use it as play therapy. And they would, you know, when kids were exhibiting negative behavior, they would correct them in the game environment. That is interesting. So is that, did that help to inspire you to, for this next part of your journey? You're going on to get a PhD, I believe it's in human and social dimension of science and technology, if I got that right. Did any of that influence your decision to go do this? Well, what um, influenced me and what I love about I'm going to Arizona State is they're about interdisciplinary study. Mm -hmm. So they're not saying, okay, you can only study psychology. If I think gaming is an important aspect, I can bring it into my research. And they're not going to be like, oh, that doesn't belong. I love the idea that they're taking STEM, traditional STEM fields, bringing in the humanities and making sure that you consider both sides in solving your research problem. And that's what I love about it. So gaming... I think gaming is important because it is, like you said, an analog for helping people understand their own behaviors, how to do inner, inner uh, personal relationships, and going into bigger and group dynamics and cohesion. Well, I wish you the best, and it's absolutely fascinating. And I have to ask you this last question. You are an entrepreneur, and you created a snowboard line called Black Betty's, if I got that right. Yes. How did you name that? And why did you do that? Were you a snowboarder? I was a snowboarder. At least I thought I was. This is kind of like (laughs) my gaming. Um, My friends and I, who are all African-American, we used to go up to the slopes and I started snowboarding. So I've been snowboarding on paper for about 20 years and there was never (laughs) anyone that looked like us. Right. Mm -hmm. And they wanted like, can we get a T-shirt or something? So I went from, you know, looking at a T-shirt, designing an image to, you know, going all the way to creating these snowboards. And it really started from the fact that we wanted to see someone or something that represented us on the slopes. So Black Betty, they call female snowboarders Betty. And we're black. I didn't know that. That's where Black Betty came from. And if you, yeah, if you look at like a lot of women's snowboarding equipment or clothing, you'd be Snow Betty and Betty Girl and things like that. Interesting. You learn something new every single day. (laughs) Well, Laris, this has been absolutely fascinating. You've taken us from Earth to the moon to Mars, beyond our galaxy and back. And I I really want to thank you for your creativity and ingenuity and, and your vision to help us get there. So thank you so much for joining Always Searching. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and having the, you know, a platform to share my thoughts. So I appreciate it. We wish you the best, and until next time, we're always searching. Thank you so much for listening to Always Searching. Please share it with your community. This podcast was produced by Noah Jones and hosted by me, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Until next time, we're always searching.